0: Have you ever wished in your life that you could hit the reset button and do something over again? I know I can think of lots of times in my life where I wish I could have done something different or said something different. There's specific conversations that come to mind where I think, if only I had said this, or if I had not said that, or if I had said something differently, maybe things would have gone better. There would have been less hurt, less pain. Uh, I can remember times in my parenting where I wish I'd done things differently. I remember one time specifically, I came home from a church event. We were Christmas caroling in a neighborhood nearby, and I went home and put my kids to bed late, and they weren't going to bed, and And I remember just yelling at them at the top of my voice and seeing the the look of panic and fear in their eyes as they scattered to their rooms immediately left me feeling like, oh, I wish I could do that over again. That was not the right way to go about it. I remember one time when I was a, a seminary student and, and uh, my wife and I were having lots of conversations about what our future could look like. And she was giving some ideas, and there was some back and forth. And I remember after a lot of these conversations, uh, one time she said to me, You know, I don't think you're really listening to me in these conversations. And she said so with, with gentleness and with love, but it was a moment that cut me deeply. And I thought, Oh, if I could go back and do this over again, have a bit of a reset then that would be so great. And in her her compassion and generosity, she allowed me that opportunity to work on that over the coming months. Sometimes we just wish that we could have a reset. Now I'm using that word because it's kind of become popularized in the last year. There's this idea of a great reset connected with the pandemic that's out there. And it's not my desire to get into that at all, other than to say, I thought of that phrase as I thought about the resurrection of Jesus. And I thought about the, the Easter story. And the idea that came to mind is that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest reset in history. When when Jesus came to life again, it, it was like he was offering the world this reset. And he's offering that to you and to me. We have that opportunity to respond and we have that opportunity today. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest reset in history and it makes any other kind of reset irrelevant doesn't matter if if this great reset theory that's going on in the world today actually comes true, because Jesus has given us the greatest reset of all, and we can have confidence in him and peace in him. So let's talk about the resurrection for just a moment, and then we're going to get into Mark chapter 16, where the story of the resurrection is told. You know, Paul writes about the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 14, "...if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless." and so is your faith. And then verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's Paul saying? He's saying if the resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen, the Christian church has been wasting its time for the last 2000 years. If Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is useless. This resurrection is the hinge of history, the most important event that has ever happened. And we could today, and we won't, but we could talk about all of the reasons why we believe this is a legitimate, verified, historical event. There's lots of reasons that give us confidence that this thing actually happened, no matter how improbable it seems for someone to come back to life. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that has ever happened in our history. And and what happened with the resurrection is multifaceted. There there are many angles to it. And sometimes I think we're guilty of looking at just one and and forgetting about the others. I I think about the resurrection uh, a little bit like this. Have you ever watched the Marvel movies? These are movies like Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and Captain Marvel. I I think there's 25 or 30 of these movies altogether together. Several years ago, Jenny and I decided we were going to watch them all in order. And so over a period of time, we worked through them uh, movie by movie by movie. And there was often points in these movies where I would pause it and I would say to Jenny, this moment seems significant. Help me understand why this moment reminds me of something that happened three movies back or uh, a character said something a few movies ago or this object appeared a few movies ago or, or this event reminds me of that other event. And she would say, yes, there's a connection here that we need to notice between this thing and that thing. Or sometimes she would say, Pause the movie, and I would pause it, and she would say, "Did you catch that?" And I would say, "Did I catch what?" And she said, "Well, this thing that just happened, this this dialogue, this conversation, this event, this object is going to show up again four movies from now, and so you need to keep it in your mind." She would have all of these connections and she was really good at keeping track of them all and I was hopeless. I was just watching the one movie and the one storyline in the one film and, and I was enjoying that for what it was, but I was missing everything else that could have happened. The resurrection has so many different elements to it. There's so many things that Jesus accomplished on the cross and by rising again. And if we can st- step back from the picture a little bit we get to see these things as they're presented throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament. I'll give you eight of them. I'll go through them really fast and if this is the first time you're hearing these terms there's a lot of detail to them of course. And I'm I'm taking this list from Mark Clark's recent book The Problem of Jesus. Uh, Here they are. The first one is the idea of Christus victor, that Jesus is is the victor, the champion, that evil thought that it had won. Satan thought that it had put Jesus to death, but by rising to life again, Jesus defeated evil and Satan. There's the idea of redemption, that we were in the clutches of sin and death, and by his death and resurrection, Jesus bought us back so that we could live in freedom. There's the idea of new covenant sacrifice. If we read the Old Testament, we read that the people under the Old Covenant Uh, pursue the forgiveness of sins by offering sacrifices. And Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice himself so that these sacrifices are no longer necessary and we can have forgiveness for our sins and we can also forgive others. There is gift righteousness, the idea that the accomplishment of Jesus and his righteousness gets applied to us. There's the idea of justification, that because of Jesus' work, we are justified before God in the the law court of God. That when, when God comes to judge us, he will not look at our sin. He will see Jesus' righteousness in our place and declare that we are innocent. There's the idea of propitiation, that God's wrath was satisfied. As Jesus died on the cross, as Jesus took all of the sins of humanity, the wrath of God was poured out on him, so it wasn't poured out and isn't poured out on us, and we can have a relationship of favor. There's the idea of expiation, the idea that Jesus not only forgives our sins, but forgives the sins that are committed against us. And then finally, there's the, the, the idea of Christus exemplar, that Jesus is our example, that by going to the cross, he demonstrated the kind of life That we ought to live. All of these ideas and more are presented to us in the New Testament. The resurrection is wonderfully good news and has so many dimensions to it. For the rest of our time, I'd like to think more specifically about the idea uh, that, that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest reset in history. And we're going to find that in the New Testament book of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time today, a special welcome to you. So glad that you're with us. We as a church have been working since September through the New Testament book of Mark. It's a biography of Jesus' life. And we come to chapter 16, the end of the book today, which tells us the story of the resurrection and helps us to understand this idea of the reset that Jesus offers to us. Mark writes this in a surprising and almost confusing way. And it leaves us with a pretty strong challenge at the end. So let's read the story, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Sabbath was Saturday, Jesus was crucified on Friday, Sabbath was Saturday, and then this is, is Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Now, note here, they're not expecting Jesus to be alive. They're going to anoint a dead body. Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to rise three days later, on the third day after he was crucified. These women probably would have heard this, but yet they weren't remembering that or expecting Jesus to be alive. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. We know from Matthew, Luke, and John, this is an angel. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of story. <laughs> What an odd place to end the story. Now, if you're reading in a paper copy of your Bible or on an app, you probably see that after verse 8, there's a line and a comment after that that says, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20, and then there is verses 9 to 20 laid out. In my Bible, it's in italics telling us that this is set aside from the rest of the text that Mark presents. So, why is the the last chapter laid out like that? And why does Mark end so abruptly in in verse 8? And what's with these verses 9 to 20? Most scholars, almost all scholars, are convinced that verses 9 to 20 were not written by Mark. Uh, There's a number of reasons why. The first is the earliest manuscripts don't have these verses in them. They didn't appear until midway through the 2nd century. Secondly, there's another alternate ending that's out there as well, which suggests that someone else also tried to add something onto the end of Mark's book. Third, the writing style of verse 9 to 20 is very different than how Mark writes. And so you can tell that someone else wrote it. Uh, Next, the the themes and, and the words that are used in these verses are different than the rest of what Mark would usually present and the themes that Mark usually focuses on. And so it seems like it was added by someone else. There's a few reasons, theories, as to why someone might have added something to the end of Mark's book. I mean, we saw in verse 8 that the story ends rather abruptly, and so it seems as if someone came along and said, this needs more detail at the end, and they added in these verses to give us a better picture of the things that happened after Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus appeared to people, Jesus gave commands, Jesus gave the, the great commission to go and spread the good news, and then Jesus ascended into heaven. There's nothing in these verses that is theologically problematic, so this doesn't need to make us question the reliability of this document or Mark's reporting of the resurrection. Uh, All of these events, most of verse 9 to 20 seems to be a compilation of other things we read in in Matthew, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. But it seems clear to most people that this wasn't written by Mark. Some people thought, maybe Mark did write more, but we lost it. There's a a page missing, or part of the scroll got torn off, or or perhaps Mark couldn't finish. He died before he could get beyond verse 8, or or maybe something happened to him, so he couldn't keep writing. I want to propose to you, uh, along with uh, a number of scholars, that Mark intended to to end at verse 8. He ends his story very abruptly. But he does so for a specific purpose. He's trying to leave us with a challenge. And so he writes chapter 16 in the way that he does. The women go to the tomb. They find it empty. They meet an angel. The angel says, tell the disciples, tell Peter, we're going, Jesus is in Galilee and you need to go meet him there. The women are too afraid. They don't say anything and the story ends. <laughs> now, we have said multiple times as we've studied this book that Marcus is bringing up two major themes over and over again. The first one's the identity of Jesus and the second is discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Both of these themes come to the forefront again in chapter 16, verses one to eight. The identity of Jesus is key here. The, the empty tomb proves that Jesus is who he said that he is. Right? We have seen through the book of Mark that Jesus has slowly been showing people who he is. We've seen him as one who, who teaches and teaches with authority. We've seen him forgiving sins. We've seen him healing people from disease. We've seen him casting out demons. We've seen him as one as, as, who has power over nature, who walks on the water and multiplies bread and feeds thousands of people. We see in Mark 11 Jesus taking on a, a kingly role as he ri- rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. In chapter 15, he takes upon himself the title, King of the Jews. And he's told his disciples three times, I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. I'm going to to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise. And now, in Mark 16, we're seeing Jesus as risen. He has done what he said he would do. He has proved that he is who he said he was. I mean, the resurrection is the ultimate proof of Jesus' identity. If someone says to you, I'm going to die and come back to life again, and then they actually pull it off, well, you ought to listen to what that person has to say. So the resurrection is the ultimate proof of who Jesus actually is, but it comes with a follow-up question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? It's the discipleship question. And Mark leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger with that, doesn't he? The angel says in verse 7 Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to Galilee. Well, what's the last thing that we heard about the disciples and about Peter? Well, back in chapter 14, Jesus is arrested, and all of the disciples scatter. They all flee, they all run away, they all abandon him in his time of need. Not one of them is left standing at his side. And what about Peter? It's kind of odd that the angel would say, Go tell the disciples and Peter, considering Peter was one of the disciples. In fact, it's probably a better translation of the Greek that the angel said, Go tell the disciples, even Peter, that Jesus is going ahead into Galilee. What's the last thing we read about Peter? Well, we read in in chapter 14 that Peter said to Jesus and all of the disciples, I will never disown you, I will never fall away. And just hours later, Peter is, has denied Jesus three times. He says, I don't even know the man. Do you think Peter was longing for a reset? And Jesus says through this angel to the disciples and to Peter, I'm going to Galilee and I want you to come to me. I'm giving you another chance. I'm offering you that reset. I've forgiven you. My grace is sufficient for you. Now come and let's start a new beginning together. This is the discipleship invitation that is being given in Mark chapter 16. But we see the women who are given the same invitation to believe that the resurrection has happened. Now, they've been with Jesus all of this time. They've supported his ministry. And yet now when they see the resurrection has actually happened, they can't believe it. They don't believe it. They fail in their discipleship, at least for now. So there's an invitation at the end. Tim Keller, or, uh, Tim Gettert, rather, writes this about how Mark ends his book. Mark has chosen to finish with a challenge instead of a happy ending. He confronts the reader with choices and opportunities rather than an excuse to close the cover and say, I'm glad that ended well. Or another uh, commentator says this, The narrator, Mark, has permitted the reader, you and me, to be with Jesus the whole time, from beginning to end. When family rejected him, the reader persisted. When religious leaders, crowds, and disciples misunderstood and abandoned Jesus, the reader, us, we stood by him. Now the reader stands at the brink of an incomplete narrative in which all have failed. And with terrible restraint, the narrator breaks off the story and leaves the readers with a decision to make. You and I have a decision to make about what we will do with the empty tomb about what we will do with Jesus' invitation to follow him. Jesus' resurrection is the greatest reset in history. It allows a chance to start over, to start fresh. I want to introduce you to a young adult in our church. Her name is Marissa Weeb. Marissa has gone through an awful lot in the last couple of years and yet has seen the power of Jesus at work in her life. Here's her story.
1: Growing up, I was always the loudest, most hyper, and outgoing child. I was outside playing with my friends, climbing trees, and running around every moment that I could. In high school, I began playing volleyball and was more invested in it. I decided I wanted to be more healthy, so I began doing more exercise every day and after volleyball practice. I also thought it was a good idea to cut out certain foods and entire food groups that I thought were unhealthy. It started as one month, then turned into two, then three, and so on and so on. This spiraled out of control fast. I found myself exhausted, tired, and very weak, yet I still forced myself to do the extra walk or to do the extra exercise. I had lost a lot of weight and no longer enjoyed playing volleyball because I had lost my power and strength in my muscles and my ability to play well. My mom noticed something was off with me and became concerned. So she took me to the doctor. The doctor diagnosed me with an eating disorder. Those words, like a punch to my stomach, full of shame and embarrassment, thinking I don't want to be seen as someone with an eating disorder. And I didn't want to associate myself with the images and stereotypes that I had in my mind of people with eating disorders. But at the same time, I didn't believe the doctor. I didn't think there was any problem. And I loved the fact that people were noticing that I had lost weight. Eating disorders are very complex and harsh. I was diagnosed with anorexia. I restricted the amount of food that I ate, over-exercised, and developed a fear of gaining weight. The scale, doctors, and everybody else said that I had lost weight, but I thought that I was fat. I thought the exact opposite. With eating disorders comes body dysmorphia, where you don't see yourself the way you actually are. I hated the way I looked. I despised myself. I got rid of the mirror in my room and avoided looking in it. Every time I looked in the mirror, I would say nasty and cruel things, called myself horrible names. I criticized every part of myself. My relationship with God definitely grew in this difficult season. I was so dependent on him, and I never stopped trusting him, and I knew that he was faithful. But life was still dark and hopeless. I became malnourished, easily angered, and super irritated. I went to therapy every week and had many psychiatrist, doctor, and dietitian appointments. I hated going to every doctor's appointments because I was not treated very well. I felt humiliated and belittled at every appointment. I tried eating as little as possible and doing as much exercise as I could and did everything in my abilities to not gain weight. After dinner, either mom or dad or both would follow me up to my room to calm me down, to assure me that I had to eat to stay alive, to hold my legs down so I wouldn't move and prevent me from hurting myself. I was filled with rage, just ready to explode. Life was a living hell, being constantly tormented by all the voices in my head. Every night I would cry out to God to just take me, to end my life and bring me home. I asked God to take me because I couldn't do it myself and because I was absolutely done fighting and living. I hated everything about life. I had no reason to live. I had no motivation, no joy, no happiness. Nothing brought me excitement. I was in such a deep, dark, hopeless pit. I felt so broken, but I never felt sick enough. In March 2019, I was taken to the hospital against my will. Although it was a horrible experience, I grew closer to God. The rules of the eating disorder program were very strict. I was stripped of all my personal belongings, any jewelry, my clothes, or any possessions. All I had was my Bible, journal, and Sudoku book. I had no freedom choice or rights. Being in the hospital was horrible. I tried so hard to get out of there. I was force-fed in order to gain weight, was allowed two small walks a day, but other than that had to stay in my bed all day long. It was so lonely and isolating in there. I spent a lot of time journaling and read through the whole Bible, except for Numbers and Deuteronomies. The system was very unfair and harsh. If I had gained a certain amount of weight that day, which I had no control over, then I would be allowed visitors. But if I didn't gain enough, then privileges were taken away and had no visitors. It was horrible. I started getting some joy back eventually and reached a safe weight and was stable. A few days before Easter, I was released from the hospital. Within two weeks, I was right back down to the hopeless, dark, deep pit. I had lost the weight, my joy, and wanted to die again. It's like the hospital kind of dropped us off at the deep end without any help or support to recover at home. We drowned. Life was terrible again. I was so done and had no motivation to keep fighting or eating, and people's comments about my weight and what I ate helped me sink lower and lower. My mom and my therapist kept talking about needing extra help because what was going on at home was not working. I refused any extra treatment because I thought if the hospital didn't work, which my health team said it would, then this definitely would not either. It wasn't worth it to do the hospital and this program. Every time this came up in conversation, I refused it and wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't even want to recover. But sure enough, I found myself packing my bag, tears streaming down my face, and my parents driving me to Vancouver to a place called Looking Glass. Looking Glass is a residential treatment home for eating disorders. I absolutely did not want to go there, but I had no choice. Looking back, it's like the second I stepped into the house, God put recovery on my heart. Maybe not the first day, because that was very painful. I felt so betrayed and, by my parents, and words cannot even describe how much shame and embarrassment I had for myself. But of course, God was so close to me while I was there. He never left me or failed me. At Looking Glass, we got meal support, learned the truth about nutrition, and were supported in many other ways to recover. Those groups were so helpful. They poured truth over all the lies I'd been living in for so long. Just like when we are made new in Christ, He covers us with the truth about who He is and who we are in Him. God saved my life by going to that place, as hard as it is to admit. I was supposed to be there for 12 weeks, but ended up there only for six weeks because we all got sent home early due to the pandemic. God is so powerful and mighty that He healed me immeasurably more than I ever thought was possible. Life at home went better than it did after the hospital. I kept on track with recovery, could eat normally, and had a better relationship with food and exercise, and experienced what freedom felt like. None of this would have been possible without God. Then a few months ago, in October, I went to Kona, Hawaii, and did a program called Kokua Crew. Kokua means help in Hawaiian, and that's what we did. We volunteered on the YWAM Kona base, working in the kitchen, doing maintenance, or doing yard work. That trip was amazing. I made many close friends, and after work, we spent lots of time at the beach, swimming in the ocean with dolphins, exploring, cliff jumping, and seeing many incredible sights around the island. God's creation is truly marvelous. We went to many worship nights, and we just see God's power displayed so evidently, where he would speak to you and give you revelations and encountered by the Holy Spirit. I got to go to church in person, and be constantly in awe of God. I had such an amazing time. I experienced the most joy and freedom that I've ever felt before. I think God sent me on that trip to solidify my healing journey. God's words, set free, and your chains have been broken, were on repeat on my mind the last two weeks of my trip. I truly had life again, and life to the fullest. I was the Marissa again, the loud, hyper, outgoing Marissa. I came home on the last day of January with my heart on fire, and being more in love with Jesus and a huge passion to go out and experience all the more God has for me and to spread his love around the world. I have learned how to bring this loud fire that I felt in Kona into my quiet time with Jesus. I am walking in freedom now and ever so close to God. Since being home, I have been overwhelmed by the goodness of God and am constantly in awe of him. God has changed and healed me so much. I have been made new in Christ And he has truly reset and transformed my life from being broken and shattered to restored and renewed.
0: Wow. Thank you, Marissa, for your vulnerability and courage. Would you say thank you to Marissa in the chat? Did you catch the words that she was using at the end there? She used words like set free, my chains have been broken, I've been restored and renewed, I'm a new creation. These are the words of someone who has experienced the power of the resurrection at work in her life. I don't know what chains might be holding you down or what ways you feel like you are a captive. Perhaps you feel stuck in unhealthy patterns, unable to escape. Perhaps you feel deep shame over things that you've done in your life or things that you are still doing In your life, you think if people only knew the kinds of things that I've done, they wouldn't love me. Perhaps you've been stuck in addiction, you can't get free. Perhaps you're simply stuck in the rat race of life, and you're thinking there's got to be more to this life than what I'm experiencing. Jesus' resurrection provides a new start, a new opportunity. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in those who have put their faith in Christ. Or as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit that lives in you the same power that raised Christ from the dead can be at work in you if you accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness and a fresh start. But here's the thing. The pattern of Jesus doesn't require you just to pull up your your, your bootstraps and just be better. Tim Keller says, Jesus did not come to say, I'm strong and brilliant. Now pull yourself together and you can be like me. No, instead, Jesus actually demonstrated the paradoxical way of Christ. And that is that the the path of victory actually goes right through weakness. Jesus modeled this for us. The path to the victory of the empty tomb went through the cross. And the shame and the humiliation and the weakness of the cross. That's how Jesus accomplished this victory. And that's how we access God's strength. This same power that raised Christ from the dead is through admitting our own weakness, admitting our need for him, admitting that we don't have what it takes, admitting that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that our sin has separated us from him. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is all about the power of God, not the power of the individual, the power of God which overcomes human dysfunction and failure. You are never too far gone for God's love and God's power to reach you. As Paul says in Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it all together. He said, I'm going to enter into the world, enter into your world, to rescue you, to save you. And we've seen all throughout this story that Mark writes that there are no model disciples, that everyone fails, that everyone falls. Even the closest ones to Jesus abandoned him and scattered. But God often uses the weak and the vulnerable and those who have failed. In fact, over and over again through Scripture, God chooses the unwanted and the weak But he saves them again and again through their failures, their hopelessness, and their suffering. It is through our weakness that Christ can make us strong. So Jesus offers to you a reset. New life. New hope. Forgiveness for everything that you've done wrong. Real power to change as you submit to him. That's not to say that when you put your faith in Christ, you snap your fingers and all your problems go away. But it is to say that when you invite Christ to give you strength in the midst of your weakness, you have a new power to fight against the challenges that you have. A new strength to embrace opposition and challenge and to develop perseverance. Jesus offers you through the resurrection eternal life with him instead of separation from him. He offers to you forgiveness and new life. Jesus' message to his disciples in Mark chapter 16 and his message to us is this, I want you back. I want you back. And his invitation to us is come follow me. Come follow me. His invitation to his disciples in Mark 16 is come to Galilee, which is where this journey began and let's start over again. Come follow me. So that's the invitation we put before you today, that Jesus puts before you today. Will you come follow me? Will you accept his offer of this reset? Romans 10 puts it like this in verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's belief in Jesus and in his resurrection that gains us access to the power of God. So, if that's a choice that you want to make today, Perhaps you've never accepted Jesus into your heart before, into your life before. You might be feeling the Spirit of God doing something within your heart. It it might feel like a little bit of a pull. It might feel, as St. Augustine said, that your heart is strangely warmed. (laughs) That's God's invitation to you to take this step of faith. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and I invite you to pray it along with me to declare your trust in Jesus, your belief in his resurrection and your acceptance of his power. Dear Jesus, I admit that I am weak as a person. I admit that I have sinned and my sin has separated me from you. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again, that you demonstrated your power over death and sin by coming to life again. I confess that I need you in my life. I want you to be my leader in the king of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. If, if you prayed that for the very first time today, we want you to let someone know. So you can hit the button in the comments. That'll connect you with me or one of our pastors. If you're watching on YouTube, click the link below the video and, and you can connect with us. We'd love to help you take some next steps in your faith with Jesus. Praise God for how he calls people to himself. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Listen, we have every reason in the world to have all the hope in the world because of Jesus' power demonstrated through his resurrection. Let's praise him together as we sing one more song.